Today's reading is entitled, A Fundamentalist Is, by Brother Richard Rohr, a Franciscan friar and founder of the Center for Action and Contemplation in Albuquerque, New Mexico. As people become more afraid and insecure, they do not know how to access their own soul, move to prayer, or toward their better instincts. At that point, the easy and comforting response is to quote some scripture, some authority, or some legal principle. It takes away one's anxiety rather quickly. The fundamentalist is more than anything else, one who believes that all problems can be resolved by an appeal to authority. No inner life is necessary. No faith journey, no actual experience. Someone else can do all my homework for me. I do not need to take responsibility for my own life. Someone higher will, they seem to say. So it's great to lift up Brother Richard Rohr, someone that I have gotten to meet and know just briefly uh, in many of my ecumenical work uh, uh, gatherings and workshops. And he's always a delight, uh, someone who offers a different perspective on the Christian religion uh, and its many expressions. And so it's good to be with you uh, again this morning across from the distance. And uh, I, I just marvel at that um, that this would not have been uh, as easy or possible uh, a year and two months ago. So uh, it's good to be with you all. I'm thinking about this morning a story, uh, as always, of one of the very first Christmas Eve service that I participated in as an intern. Uh, now almost 10 years or more ago, my goodness, uh, things fly by. Um, and it, it was when I was an intern in Oak Park, Illinois, and it was a whirlwind of a day, Christmas Eve. I had four services to look forward to. I wasn't quite sure what to expect. It was a lot of Christmas from about 3.30 p.m. or 3 p.m. to uh, until after one in the morning that day. Four services. <laughs> and it was one of those experiences where the exhaustion feels just right somehow. Uh, and, and it was a good exhaustion and something that I tend to feel with all of our bigger holidays. But it was also a day where the clergy team uh, there in Oak Park would run around between services yelling things out like, come on, baby Jesus, get born already. For we could feel the exhaustion in our bones uh, and the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who are coming in and out of the doors to sing Christmas carols and to celebrate that day as Unitarian Universalists. It's important to keep the humor in religion. Um, and so we certainly believe that and celebrated that. I believe it was the third service of the evening. Uh, one of our community ministers was participating in the service. And uh, this should come as no surprise, but my internship site was had notoriously bad internet and computers, something that many of us are familiar with of our own technology mishaps and adventures here at UUCL. But this one, it was a poured concrete building, one of the very first poured concrete buildings built in the early 1900s. And so the technology and the wiring was terrible. 
On top of it all, the senior minister, his computer in his office, he never closed a single tab application window. He never shut down his computer or anything. So it ran incredibly slow and was impossible. But so here we were, the community minister and myself trying to print out the readings for the service. And she was tasked with reading from the Gospels, the story of Jesus's birth on Christmas Eve. It wasn't going to happen. And the computer finally worked and we could look up the verses. The printer, of course, would not work. The community minister turned to me and said, well, I guess we need a Bible. It was a perfectly reasonable statement. Can't print out the gospel readings? No problem. Find a Bible. They're guaranteed to be in there. We looked around the senior minister's office, the shelves and shelves and shelves of books. We peeked into the assistant minister's office, more shelves of books. At one point, we looked at one another and just started laughing. There wasn't a single copy of the Bible in the minister's offices. Not a single copy. It was absolutely absurd. And we just laughed and laughed. And it was a laugh that highlighted how bizarre this occurrence was. You would think in a clergy person's office, you would find a Bible. Even a Unitarian minister's office a religious tradition where we owe a lot of our roots to Protestant Christianity. Nevertheless, we couldn't find a single one. I ran over to the extension office about three blocks away, so it was a good hike, and managed to get the gospel readings printed out just in time for the service. But that moment stuck with me, that experience. And it's not that I swore on my ancestor's honor or anything, but I still vowed to never let that happen to me. I told myself that when I was a minister myself, I would always have some representation of our six sources as Unitarian Universalists in my office. And for Judaism and Christianity, the Bible accomplishes that. It's a book that's incredibly important to our tradition. And dare I say it, it was our first book of scripture back when we were still primarily Protestant. Today, Unitarian Universalists have a variety of views, no surprise, on the Bible. Some of you grew up with it. You know the stories. You know the songs written about it. I'm sure if I started singing one of the songs uh, to memorize the books of the Bible, you'd be able to join right in from church camp, your experiences uh, as a youth. Some of you grew up not hearing much of it, perhaps only what was read on Sunday morning. And if you were Catholic, I'd be willing to bet you didn't go to Bible study much. Others of you just heard it on Christmas and Easter, the same stories every year. A handful of you grew up Jewish to varying degrees, hearing the Hebrew scriptures during holidays or perhaps Torah at temple or during your bar or bat mitzvah if you had one. And then there's those of you that grew up or were unchurched. But I can guarantee that you were still impacted in some way by stories or phrases from that text. Today, as a Unitarian Universalist, I'm going to go ahead and be a little presumptuous, but I reckon not many of us have cracked open a Bible in some time. And for those of you that have, perhaps it was to look up something specific, maybe one of the more problematic verses. I don't have data on what current Unitarian Universalist attitudes are regarding the Bible, but I'd say they are overwhelmingly in the realm of indifference, perhaps with some really serious and valid baggage attached. Uh, some of us come from populations where the Bible has been used to abuse us, namely LGBTQ persons and women. Though let's not forget, 
that just a handful of decades ago, African-Americans were on that list too. If we're being honest, Unitarian Universalists are often a people, and this is a beautiful thing about us, seeking refuge from religion gone wrong. For those of us who grew up in the West, that is more often than not some version of Christianity. And those of us that have either been UU most or all of our lives or those who have been have no bitterness toward the religion of our upbringing are in the minority. Maybe I'm wrong with that last bit there, and I really, really hope that I am, because more than anything, I want Unitarian Universalism to be a religion of healing, where the first words out of our mouths when someone asks about us, who are we? Instead of saying, well, at UUCL, we don't believe. Instead, we tell people what we do believe. Anyway, the basic summary of how Unitarian Universalists approach the Bible is with so many things, it's complicated. It's all over the map. And that's okay. Thinking back to that evening at my internship site and the lack of any Bible in the church on Christmas Eve, I still have to laugh. But after that, I didn't think much of it, even with that little silent vow I made to never let that happen. Upon coming here to Kentucky now, this Sunday is the sixth year officially since you've called me as your minister. Mother's Day is always the official day. Upon coming here to Kentucky, I've thought about this a lot. It's led to a sort of awakening as to just how prevalent the biblical texts are in our culture still. And the biggest awakening that happened was this past February with the celebration of Purim, a Jewish festival. You might remember that I retold the story of Purim from the book of Esther. And in doing that, I had a lot of fun in reading that text, a text I had never read before, a story I never really knew, in seeing the uniqueness of the story. And you might also remember that the book of Esther is only one of two books in the Bible that don't mention God whatsoever, at least in the original text in the Protestant Bible. The story itself was marvelous and so very human. It became relevant for today in reading it and applying it to the here and now. And it was a great exercise. And from that experience, I decided that I wanted to read the entirety of the Hebrew and Christian scriptures with the Apocrypha, those books that Protestants and uh, Catholics uh, can't really decide on what should be in the Bible or not. And I was going to do it in 45 days. I looked at all sorts of plans for reading it. There are plenty that take a whole year, maybe six months. I found one woman that blogged about it and tried to do it in 20 days, which sounds absolutely intense. Most Protestant and Catholic churches read only portions of the Bible on a three-year cycle. They never exactly read the whole text on Sunday morning. No, I wanted to read it all. And 45 days sounded just right. So I began. I blogged about it and had a few loyal readers. Others would pop in here and there to see what on earth was I up to. Every day for 45 days, I read another large chunk of the Hebrew and Christian scriptures. And sure enough, on day 45, I finished with the book of Revelation. It was a difficult experience, but it was also one of the most rewarding, enlightening, and edifying experiences that I've had lately. Now, don't get me wrong, I wanted to quit. I wanted to throw that Bible across the room many times. Deuteronomy, despite having some great stories, including one of my favorite stories, was a slog to read. 
First and second Kings were the most soul draining texts I have ever read. Ezekiel made me furious. The three Johannine epistles toward the end of the Christian scriptures made me cringe. The amount of times the writer of those letters said, my little children, my little children over and over again, it was, it just felt really creepy and out of place for me to read it in 2021. There were ups, there were downs, there were all the in-between. There were times I was falling asleep. There were times I was cracking up. There is a lot of hilarious stories in this text. There were times that I was heartbroken, that I was downtrodden, that I was inspired, riveted, and engaged. Reading the entirety of the Bible touched upon all of my emotions, and I'm absolutely glad I did it, and I would do it again in a heartbeat. This is a book that has been used to exact judgment on people, and a book that people have exacted their own judgment on. But what I've discovered is that not many people have read it cover to cover. And I did some digging around, and the, the general consensus, and I, I really doubt this is, uh, I think there might have been a couple Pew Forum polls about this, um, but I didn't find, I found mostly opinions about this. The general consensus is that roughly 10% of Americans claim to have read the Bible cover to cover. And I wonder if it's even less than that. And while I don't think every single person on the planet should read it, I do think it's a worthy read, regardless of anyone's religious beliefs. When I undertook this 45-day adventure, I had a big decision to make. How would I read this book, this collection of books? Would I read it as a fundamentalist would, treating it as a literal story, whether I believed in the story or not? Or would I read it as pure myth, the other end of the spectrum? Instead, I treated it as the thing that it is, a text full of complexity. Yes, there is myth and fact within it, but there's also truth, wisdom, paradox, contradiction, joy, sorrow, the fullness of humanity, the good and the bad. It is a series of texts written for a specific time to specific people, but it's also a text that can be relevant today it can speak to us in this moment. The religions represented in the Bible, whether we like them or not, are still with us. And so I refuse to read this book with a literalist lens. Why should I be like the fundamentalists? And I refuse to read it with a dismissive attitude, because sometimes the non-religious can have a fundamentalist approach as well. And so I read it as any Unitarian Universalist should read a text. We are a living tradition, which means our texts should be living as well. If the text is literal, then it's dead. If the text is pure myth, then it's dead as well. But in allowing the Bible to be both a text from another time and also pulling it into this time for today, for me, it came alive. Now, I'm convinced that reclaiming the Bible is important for religious progressives, whether or not they are Christian. It's important to understand just how much our culture is impacted by this book. In reading it cover to cover, I've discovered so many ways, either in speech or names or ways of doing things that are from the Bible, things that I would not have known unless I read it. The amount of times I've run around saying in jest, gird your loins. I can now say that phrase is biblical. <laughs> I don't know if you knew that, but gird your loins is a biblical phrase. In reading the Bible, I can say confidently and with some joy that I like it. And I'm surprised to say that. 
And you know this about me as your minister. I love a good story. And there are plenty of them in that book. In reading the Bible, I found a collection of texts that were full of humanity, the good, the bad, the ugly, all the in-between, people figuring out how to live amidst great strife, injustice, uncertainty, people just living and people dying. And in many ways, God was more of a stage director in most of the text, keeping the story moving along, giving people their lines, and ensuring the stage crew was ready for a scene change. I loved journeying with Balaam and his donkey, a talking donkey in the book of Deuteronomy. I loved King Hezekiah, a righteous king that also hedged his bets and was fearful of conflict, figuring he would die before Israel was conquered. I love the story of Tobias and Raphael, the archangel on the road, a biblical buddy film, or maybe even a coming of age story. I loved how Judith slayed the enemy leader, Holofernes, with dignified, majestic grace. I would not mess with Judith after reading that story. And dare I say this, I gained a new love for the Apostle Paul, too. Now, you might hear that bit and go, whoa, wait a minute. What about all the stuff that Paul said about women and gay people? And it turns out he didn't have much to say. Many of the texts specifically about women weren't written by Paul. They were people quoting Paul out of context. The ones that were are, again, taken out of their original context. Did you know that what Paul wrote in the epistle to the Romans about women, it was not an admonition against women. It was a caution for Christian communities to blend in with Roman society to avoid unnecessary persecution. Stoicism, which, uh, as in the philosophy, was in fashion in Rome. And because Christians espoused a creed that said, in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, the early communities were noticed by the Roman authorities. Women were being treated equally. Slaves were being treated as human. And Paul wrote to them, asking them, to blend in, to survive. Now, I'd rather debate, was Paul right in asking those communities to do that? And out of the 31,102 verses in the Hebrew and Christian scriptures, only 0.02% have been used against LGBTQ uh, persons. That's not even including the Apocrypha, which would push that statistic to be even more negligible. But even those 0.02% of verses that are often called the clobber verses, every single one of them can be disproven as targeting homosexuality. The problem here with all of the Bible is that even though it is a book so important to our culture, so many have lost the will, the drive, and the curiosity to really learn about it. Not just memorizing verses in English or being able to tell someone this or that story or to prove one's own righteousness and piety. And many of us have experienced that as Unitarian Universalists in Kentucky. But to really know the text of letting it come alive and letting your life equally impact the text as well. To me, that's when something becomes Holy Scripture, a sacred text, when it is an expression of the fullness of our humanity and the relationship is mutual. It impacts us and we impact it by telling the stories and making them relevant. There are problematic verses in the some sayings of the Buddha, some collections of the Buddha, in Hindu scriptures, in our own transcendentalist ancestors, but people keep the stories alive. 
recognizing that life is a messy thing full of mistakes and we reinterpret them or we own what is harmful and we try to heal from that. And so should Unitarian Universalists read the Bible. If you got the time and patience, <laughs> do it, read it. If you don't have a lot of time, I'd recommend a handful of books from the Bible. Um, you know, I even wonder, would a Unitarian Universalist Bible study be possible? Maybe a weird Bible study. There's plenty of weird stories in this book that could be uh, interesting to explore and to dig deep into as religious progresses. Because when you read it and study it, a narrative emerges that is different than any judgment you might have or how a literalist or fundamentalist might read the text and use it against others. If we are truly part of a good heretic religion, which means to believe differently, then our approach to the religion must be open, always responsible, but open. And this includes sacred texts as well. Our Jewish siblings have always read their scriptures with that spirit of openness. The narrative I read in this collection of texts is one for concern, for justice, for love, and for hope. The, the copy I'm holding right here is an edition called the Poverty and Justice Bible, and it, it's one of my favorites because while it doesn't have the Apocrypha, which are full of great stories, it does have highlighted within the text over 2,000 examples of verses where the Bible is concerned with poverty and justice. And now the New Zealand Bible Society, this is fun, would jump in and say, only 2,000 in our reading, we found over 3,100 verses. Now, compare that where the Bible at most has seven verses mistranslated and used against LGBTQ verses. 3,100 verses and more injustice and love and mercy and compassion versus seven that have been mistranslated and taken out of their context for hundreds and hundreds of years. The verses of the Bible that concern themselves with justice and poverty are well over 10%, not 0.02%. And I'm sure I could find more. I'm sure you could find more. Throw in the verses about that love and compassion and wisdom and teaching and mercy I wonder what percentage that would be in the end. But even that, that method of approaching the text, I would say is incorrect, at least, at least for me. It's not about cherry picking. It's not about going, look, I found a verse that says something I agree or disagree with. It's about the context of the book and our intent. We must first ask what the context is. Who is this book originally written for? Uh, what were their needs? Can it possibly be re relevant today? How? Why? Second, what is my intent in reading this book? The late Christian author, progressive Christian author, Rachel Held Evans once wrote about this. And she wrote, if you're looking for verses with which to support slavery, you will find them. If you're looking for verses with which to abolish slavery, you'll find them. If you're looking for verses with which to oppress women, you will find them. If you're looking for verses with which to liberate and honor women, you will find them. If you're looking for reasons to wage war, you will find them. If you're looking for reasons to promote peace, you will indeed find them. If you're looking for an outdated, irrelevant, ancient text, you will find it. If you're looking for truth, believe me, you will find it. This is, there are this is why there are times when the most instructive question to bring to the text is not, what does it say, but what am I looking for? And she continues, I suspect Jesus knew what he said when he, when he said, 
Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. If you want to do violence in this world, you will always find the weapons. If you want to heal, you will always find the balm. I undertook an experiment that opened my eyes to some valuable learning. I feel more connected to the text of the Bible, to our cultural narrative, but also to our history as Unitarian Universalists. When I read this book, I saw very clearly in the text a God of love and unending forgiveness. That's what our Universalist ancestors saw too. They suffered for that, but they kept proclaiming it, for they could do no other. I saw a book that was concerned with living a good life here and now and trying to do the right thing. And interesting enough, the Bible is barely concerned with an afterlife. And when you look at the Hebrew and Greek, there is no hell. And there's barely a heaven to speak of. I could go on all day about this, and I almost already have. This is not the last time I'll share this with you, this renewed passion for this text. Perhaps we'll study it together in the way only Unitarian Universalists can, with joy and laughter and curiosity, with irreverence. Maybe I'll preach more on it. Maybe you'll read parts of it or all of it yourself. What's next for me is continuing this journey, not just with the Bible, but with other sacred texts. Um, I am two days away from finishing the sacred text of Islam, the, the Holy Quran. And uh, there are piles and piles of sacred texts in the world's religions. And many of them have verses that are going to challenge me, that are going to anger me. They're going to make me want to throw the book across the room. And yet there's a beauty and there's something worth learning in many of them. Or perhaps I'll understand fully what a group is about or what motivates them as a people. I hope you're inspired to dig into a text that is sacred to you. For in ensuring a text comes alive, that is what makes it sacred in Unitarian Universalism. And so I look forward to hearing about how texts and writings and poetry and sacred books and whatever it is that you discover come alive for you in your experience with all of the challenges and the joys and the wisdom in between. May it be so. Blessed be. Amen.